The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Oh Oops Ha or Hmm edition. It's Wednesday, May 15th, 2019. On today's show, Long Shot, it's a throwback. It's a theatrical release rom-com starring a doofus and an unattainable babe that, spoiler alert, he attains, but it has progressive elements. Uh, she's more successful than he is. It stars Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. And then Dead to Me is the latest serial Netflixer. It's a California dramedy noir starring Christina Applegate as a grieving widow and linda cardellini as her mysterious new friend and finally on the occasion of the met ball we revisit the subject of camp with slate's own brian louder uh, joining me today is uh, julia turner who is the uh, deputy managing editor of the la times hey julia hello hello and uh dana stevens who's slate's film critic hey dana hey steve uh, let's dig right in. Longshot tells the story of a Brooklyn alternative press journalist who becomes a speechwriter for Madam Secretary for the Secretary of State of the United States. As she ramps up her campaign for the presidency, begins the early stages of ramping up her campaign for the presidency. Twist number one. They knew each other as kids when she was a student council goddess, and he was the little bespectacled neb that she babysat. Twist number two, even though he is a magnificent slob, I mean, he is a schlub in this movie. She gets him. She really gets him. And his humor and doofy charisma loosen her up. Uh, we'll have a lot to discuss here. The movie pairs Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron co-stars O'Shea Jackson in a magnificent supporting turn as Rogen's best friend. Let's listen to a clip. But how does that work with you? Do you like, do you like date? Uh, yeah, I date. Generally, you know, with people who have similar lifestyles to me, people who travel a lot. It's hard to keep those things alive. I'm, I mean, who wants to follow me around the world and hope I have five minutes to be affectionate? Yeah. And honestly, guys don't really want to date women who are more powerful than them. They think they do, but it's a dick shriveler. Oof. Mm -hmm. Dick Shriveler is my favorite Batman villain, though, so. You gonna ask why I'm still single? No, I get it. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, it adds up. All right, Dana, well, I'll start with you. I mean, there's kind of the pleasant sense memory of uh, driving to a movie theater and sitting for 90 minutes or so watching a rom-com featuring two pretty A-list movie stars. On the other hand, uh, what did you think? <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to interpret that interjection later on. I, I, I have want no you idea. To, that's I want you to interpret it. That's your job. <laughs> My job is to be a a Steve's response critic. <laughs> no, your job is to like take the inchoate, you know, feelings of a non professional audience and articulate them <laughs> for them. I mean, I think that clip sort of captured both the low key charm and the somewhat shambling ambitions of this movie. I, I had heard that this was an unusual rom-com for some of the reasons you describe, right? That it's about a very high-powered woman who is not apologetic about her power and unlike in the movie Knocked Up, uh, is not seen as being kind of a humorless stiff because of it. And there's certainly chemistry between the two of them. So this is a sort of pleasant and romantic watch. I, I think that I would say this movie is not extremely funny. <laughs> you don't laugh out loud that often during it, but it is. But it moves along swiftly. It's very sweet-spirited. There's great chemistry between the two leads. Um, and unfortunately, it takes place in one of the most implausible fictional worlds I've seen on screen <laughs> in some time. And we can get into that, into the political world that this takes place in. It's not trying to be a movie about politics, but but it does make these gestures at satirizing our contemporary political reality that fall very flat because it seems to not want to have to put any teeth into that. And, and we can talk about that later on. I mean, I think in general, I would say this movie brought me everything I wanted because I just wanted to see Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron have a sweet connection with each other. And they do. I, I should also go into it saying that, you know, this question of whether or not a schlub can win over a hottie, which is implicit in the very title of the movie Longshot, 
is a longstanding trope, right, that we've been making fun of in TV sitcoms and movie rom-coms forever. But in taking that as its explicit subject, this movie kind of diffuses what I think is kind of a, a tired argument about that. And especially mm-hmm. tired argument because, in my opinion, Seth Rogen is completely hot. And I've thought that for a decade. <laughs> so I have no problem with the idea of this imbalance in their relationship. And in fact, I think that's where some of the sweetness of the movie comes from. You think when you hear that clip that we just heard that one of the major conflicts of the movie might be, oh, no, she makes more money, is more powerful than him. She's the secretary of state and he's just a lowly journalist speechwriter. But in fact, that never really becomes a conflict between the two of them. He he is the sort of beta in their relationship, at least professionally speaking, uh, and even sexually speaking in one scene. And uh, and he likes it. Mm. Uh, Julia, did you, did you like it? Oh, I have a few thoughts. Number one, Charlize Theron is so good. I mean, obviously she's been one of our best working actresses for more than a decade. Uh, and obviously she was incredible in Mad Max colon Fury Road, even though none of us liked it and we all got yelled at for it. And obviously I really, really responded to Tully, which we talked about and thought she was extraordinary in it. But she's extraordinary again also in this movie and does such a great job with this performance. I I think you're right, Dana, that the world is implausible, which I don't mind, but also just uh, points at political ideas and then refuses to take them seriously enough for them to even make sense within the logic of the plot. I'm not actually asking for political commentary on the Trumpian age. I just want the movie to have a theory of politics that it takes as seriously as its lead character. And it fails that spectacularly in the final quarter of the movie, I think, in a way that kind of undoes the pleasure that I had had at the beginning of it. However, Charlize Theron is so good and so funny and so dexterous and so kind of commanding at the same time as she's self-deprecated. Like, yeah, Fred Flarsky is in love with her. That is fun to watch. Um, His name is Fred Flarsky. And apparently this movie was initially supposed to be called Flarsky, which seems like a good change on somebody's part. Um, And I generally just think their chemistry works and the chemistry between the two of them and the fact that obviously people of all different shapes and sizes and appearances can uh, find themselves into one another and to suggest that physical attractiveness is the only uh, means by which people can fall for each other and that um, we should be offended as feminists when women take men who are less hot than them is has always been a lame argument and this movie very with a nice light touch sends that up. So I, I loved the performance, enjoyed their rapport, had a great time for about 70% of this movie. And then the way in which it concludes itself um, sort of blithely skips past a bunch of the political principles that they spend the rest of the movie debating in a way that made the souffle collapse a little bit for me. Remind me, who played who played Phoebe on Friends? Lisa Kudrow. Lisa Kudrow, who's in this briefly in this movie, but uh, there was my, one of my favorite exchanges on Friends was between Phoebe and Chandler when she says, as by way of consoling him, she says, listen, you see super hot women all the time with nothing guys. You could be one of those nothing guys. And um, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I have to be Lisa Goudreau to carry it. Uh, but anyway, um, I, you know, you do, you see attractive women with nothing guys. You see all kinds of people with all other kinds of people. It's not that it's, Un- totally unrealistic or like um, empirically, you know, impossible or whatever, or po- you know, it's just like, it's not a total stretch to imagine that just schlubby guys with a, with a very attractive woman. I think the feminist argument would have been that in order to get people to go see, you know, a rom-com, you need to depict women as objects of total physical perfection who nonetheless are so missing some sense of self that they need it to be supplied by a man and that sense of self that the man supplies is a degree of uh, playfulness and uh, charisma while he's being held to absolutely no standard of physical perfection right so it's it's like they're they're sort of designed to they're designed designed with a incredibly condescending sexist premise and you know what happened was 
people really pushed back on the movie Knocked Up, which fe- featured Seth Rogen and Katherine Heigl. So, so what was interesting to me going into the movie is, is this a, a fuck you from Seth Rogen for the pushback uh, on Knocked Up or on I'm Sorry? And I think it's kind of a little bit of both. Um, I thought the movie works when Charlize Theron is, is, is allowed to play and she's so good in it um, because she's believable both as this impossibly like statuesque perfect you know sort of just magnificent creature who's also brilliant and a you know totally triumphant careerist um who who does in fact then let down her hair because of the relationship with seth rogan and then she she gives what i thought of a sort of a rose burn turn you know another impossibly beautiful woman who's shown the world that she can do um a certain kind of slapstick comedy and there there are just the moment you know i won't give any of them away but what they really let their hair down during one sequence in the movie she's hysterically funny i mean she's incredibly good in this movie and rogan is just rogan he's great at being seth rogan um it's not it, it did bomb it's not quite funny enough and I'd never believed them as a couple. And I, Dana, I will just confess it. I, n- I don't know whether I'm struggling to believe that the guy in that shitty windbreaker with literally no sense of style, uh, a career that's completely dried up, a chip on his shoulder, with a little bit of a sense of humor is really going to win her over. Like, I mean, I, I don't know whether it was the chemistry of the stars, the premise of this, the, the film, the... um discrepancy between the way they look and then the way the screenplay writes them or just the material underlying material itself i just i i laughed several times throughout it i totally enjoyed it on one level but i the the magic that happens in a rom-com is when you just are rooting for the couple is it because it's just such a fucking tired set of tropes i mean it, it it didn't do a whole lot to renew those tropes I mean, can I make the argument that part of why this might have flopped this weekend is precisely the the beta male alpha female setup that I described a minute ago? I don't think Mm. it's the lack of jokes necessarily or the lack of chemistry. In fact, there are plenty of rom-coms that did incredibly well that have far worse jokes and chemistry than this movie. (laughs) And I can imagine that this movie didn't find its place on the market precisely because it's different from some of those tired tropes you mentioned. And comparing it to Knocked Up, I don't think it would be a deliberate authorial move on Seth Rogen's part because he wasn't the author of this movie. He was not the director. Jonathan Levine, who's directed him in a couple of other comedies, was. And he wasn't on the writing team for the movie either. So except in the sense that, you know, he's being cast in another movie that has him with an unlikely girl above his station, um, I don't think that Knocked Up is particularly what this, this movie has in mind. But one thing it has over Knocked Up and many, many other romantic comedies starring Apatow bros or not is that it's not misogynist in any way, shape or form. And that's just something refreshing to find in a movie. In other words, this is a rom-com that feels maybe more marketed to women and uh, and that that could account for some of its failure to succeed on the marketplace. And this is not me saying it's the greatest movie of the year by any means, but I do sense something unusual and different in what it's trying to do with their relationship. (laughs) Stipulated that, as Julia said, the political world that they move in makes so little sense that it starts to affect the relationship itself. Because obviously, a cabinet member and her speechwriter, especially when she starts running for president, are going to be two people who talk a lot about politics and ideas. And we're supposed to believe that these two, you know, bond and then later clash and work things out over politics and ideas. And yet the politics and ideas in this movie are extremely muddled. And as Julia says, it's not a matter of, you know, standing on a soapbox and saying it doesn't have the right politics or something like that. It's just that the actual world that they live in doesn't seem to make any sense. Bob Odenkirk is the president, which is a great casting idea. I was so excited. In fact, part of why I pushed for us to do this movie on the show was the idea of Bob Odenkirk playing a president. But his presence as the president is really underused and really not understood or mapped out in any way that makes any satirical sense. To your point that this was a rom-com for women, I mean, aren't all rom-coms largely intended for a female audience? And then the vision of romance and masculinity has to be palatable enough that you can bring your your heteronormative partner along to it. I mean, not to be totally cliched about it, but, you know, I went out and saw it on a Saturday night screening and there were a bunch of couples there watching it, contributing to its paltry box office. I thought I think what was interesting about it is that the notion of what the female fantasy looks like is different and feels a bit more modern 
And instead of, uh, you know, it is the uptight woman who needs to be taught to loosen up by the guy, but having a guy who's really comfortable playing second fiddle and playing help help meet and supporter. I don't know if I've seen one that's quite structured that way before. Uh, and I don't know. I, li- I liked that piece of it. Can we also just briefly shout out the other performance by a very beautiful person being very funny, which is Alexander Skarsgård plays the sort of glamorous world leader that we are supposed to think Charlize is intended for rather than the schlubby windbreaker guy. Um, he's playing like a Justin Trudeau-esque dashing Canadian premiere. And, um, and he's just a total galoot. And it is very funny to see Skarsgård sending up the ostensibly handsome guy who's actually such a doofus that he's not attractive at all. Uh, I enjoyed that performance. Yeah, no, he's very funny. And also, I just want to reiterate, I, every time O'Shea Jackson was on screen, I found myself laughing. I thought he just brought a lot of life into the movie um, and agreed she's terrific. I mean, she she pretty much, she's the heart of this movie. She's just fantastic in it. All right, it's Longshot. It's uh, in theaters now. It'll be streaming soon enough. Uh, if you have an opinion on it, throw it at us on uh, Twitter. All right, moving on. All right, well, before we go any further, before we dig in uh, to our subjects, we probably have some business. Dana, what do you have? First of all, we have a reminder about Slate Day, which is coming up on Saturday, June 8th in two different locations in New York, the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and the SVA Theater nearby in Chelsea. You will see live shows from Outward, The Waves, Decoder Ring, Studio 360, Trumpcast, The Political Gab Fest, and us. We will be doing a live Culture Gab Fest on the High Line that evening. You can come for the whole day with an all-access pass or just get tickets for your favorite show or event. I think I should throw in that there's also going to be a trivia game hosted, among others, by me and Chris Melanfi. There's going to be, I believe, a drag brunch as part of the Outward show. So there are all kinds of fun activities that day. For tickets and more information, go to slate.com slash live. We hope to see you on June 8th at Slate Day. In Slate Plus today, we will be talking about the royal baby. Can you remember his name offhand, Stephen? Archie Harrison Higginbotham. <laughs> I forgot about the royal two last names. I don't know. You lo- he, the, you lost the, son me of Meghan, the son of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry has been born and we will discuss with June Thomas, one of our favorite royal opiners and uh, and local Brit exports, uh, what it means to have a royal baby and to read obsessively about that royal baby in the pages of the Daily Mail. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can, as always, sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for your first year. It comes with all kinds of benefits. You'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows. So if you want to show your support for Slate and for the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, let's go. Dead to Me is a Netflix streamer. It uh, stars Christina Applegate as Jen, a bereaved widow whose husband was killed by a hit-and-run driver who has never been caught. Desperate to find solace, she attends a grief counseling group uh, therapy session where she meets Judy, uh, a mysterious new friend. The two become fast friends, but their friendship is shot through with more than just uh, the expected emotional complications. Let's listen to a clip. So last week, we started talking about the F word. Forgiveness. Forgiveness can be very difficult, and it can take time, even a lifetime. But no matter what the circumstances, everyone is deserving of forgiveness. You really think that? Jesus thought that. Amen. Um, excuse me. Um, how do you forgive someone who hits your husband with their car and then drives away, leaving him to bleed to death on the side of the road? How do you forgive that? I don't really want to get into it, so someone else can go. At your own pace. It's okay to feel whatever you're feeling. Sad, angry, defensive. I'm not defensive, okay? I'm tired. I'm tired, too. Julia, I'll start with you. Um, this guy's the makings of a, of a prestige TV hit. Um, critics have been mostly enthusiastic with some caveats. What? Uh, where do you land on this? Ah, this show makes me so uncomfortable. It makes me so uncomfortable. Um, I think possibly because it's good. I'm curious to hear what you guys make of it. Uh, 
I would say first that the two performances are really good. I mean, to see Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini dig into something this meaty and tonally complicated and full of as many twists and turns strikes me as one of the upsides of the modern television marketplace. Um, I mean, we've seen Linda Cardellini a couple times in the last six months in these like uh, you know, just radiating charisma through these doofus wife roles, first in Green Book and then in Avengers colon Endgame. Um, and it's nice to see Linda Cardellini with more to do. She is great. And she and Applegate have really interesting, wary chemistry as they both bond and size each other up. I would say in principle, I really love the idea of a television half hour that focuses on the experience of grief for perhaps obvious reasons, uh, grief is not like a major subject of filmed popular entertainment because most people would pretend, prefer to pretend that death does not exist. Um, however, I think that's one of the things that can make grief more isolating and lonely. You don't have a narrative of what the experience is like. You don't have an arc of how you're supposed to feel. Um, in part because the culture would prefer to ignore it. And there are some ways in which this show just pauses to depict the isolation of grief, um, the kinds of like lower barriers to connection that you can have when you're going through grief, where you sort of find that there's a set of people in the tribe of grievers who understand you better than the people who used to be your intimates, where you can forge bonds. All of that seemed emotionally interesting, right, true, and underexplored. Um, however, due to the structure of the plot, their friendship seems to be a bit of a ticking time bomb. And uh, Christina Applegate plays this widowed mom of two kids and it just stresses me out. It stresses me out so much. Maybe I would also rather ignore and avoid grief, but it's not really the grief part of it that I want to avoid. It's the like sense of danger to her grieving children that I have because of how uh, of my uncertainty about where the plot is going to take us. And I'm anxious. It makes me anxious, even though I find things to admire in it. Do you find it not so anxious making that you can watch it? Yeah, I really responded to this show. I thought it was extremely funny and that the two performances, the friendship between the two women was fantastically drawn. I mean, Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini are queens. They have needed roles this good and this big for so long. And it made me also think just with affection of how long they've been around on the TV landscape. I mean, anyone who is in Freaks and Geeks has my kind of love forever. It's funny that we actually have two alumni we're talking about in this show, Seth Rogen and Linda Cardellini. I just am always happy to see people from that show doing well because that show was just such a powerhouse of young talent. And so, you know, to see Linda Cardellini now playing someone who's sort of middle-aged is, is uh, it makes me feel very old, but also very tender toward her and glad to see her get a great role. Um, and this show is just ultra watchable. I mean, I'm always talking about wanting shows to be compact. This show is very compact and each episode really moves and really hooks you into the next episode. I realize that's, you know, the Netflix formula par excellence is to give you a twist at the end of every episode to keep you watching. But in the case of this show, they felt like real earned twists to me within the admittedly uh, somewhat contrived universe that this show takes place in. Like you have to believe a lot of coincidences in order to um, understand how these two women's stories intertwine. And without giving anything away, there's pretty much a secret revealed at the end of every episode uh, that often undercuts what you thought you believed about the characters for the previous 30 minutes. This is this show is run by a woman, Liz Feldman, written by a woman. It's her first comedy show that she's run all by herself. And to me, it just it scratched an itch that I have that certain shows Killing Eve, a much better show than this. But it also kind of satisfies satisfies it shows that are about women, by women, for women, starring women and that don't really attempt to um, to make heterosexual romance the, the be all end all of their stories. This this show very much falls into that category. And I loved it. I couldn't stop watching. I sat down just to sample it for our conversation ended up watching five episodes oh wow uh i really like it i mean and uh, i think both leads in it are just t terrific um and uh i y y in order to make this work you can't have the grief be 
a cheap MacGuffin, um, you know, to motivate all the twists and the and the noir reveals. Uh, it has to be felt somehow. It has to be written into the script in a way that you really believe it. And um, I did. I thought the first episode set it up. Um, you believe almost, you know, from the opening shot that Christina Applegate is a like profoundly wounded and bereft uh, human being. Um, and her, you know, both the writing and the performance really, really carry that through. Um, I want to, I'm two, three episodes in and I want to keep watching. I'm hooked. I do feel as though the rhythm of, you know, it's, it's curious. It's, it's, it's hooked me in the sense that you, you have a premise and then a reveal and the reveal resets the premise. And then you have an episode that unfolds that kind of reset premise and then a reveal and then the next episode is you know proceeds along that reset premise um i like the way in which it's leading me on it's starting to feel a tiny bit like a technique to me or or like you know a little bit you know frankly sort of a little bit manipulative and um i'm curious where it's going to go from here but certainly i'm going to watch it through to the end and one thing I would say about those resets that you mentioned, the way the premise resets for every episode, is that that changes something that you understand about the characters each time and yeah. uh, and deepens your understanding of them and complicates it. So, for example, Linda Cardellini's character, Judy, who for the first couple of episodes is this essentially just sweet, guileless, lovable sort of young hippie girl, starts to be revealed in various ways as a more complicated, not necessarily truthful, uh, not necessarily completely trustworthy person, while still being someone that you you really love and care about deeply. And so I don't think the resets are just about pulling out the rug from under the audience every time to keep you watching. They do seem to expand your understanding of these characters and, and their universe with each episode, at least as far as I've watched so far. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. And I would add very quickly also the show for being uh, created and written by a woman. It, it It's totally aware of the crazy ex-girlfriend, you know, or the crazy the crazy woman conceit and is playing with it, but also very intelligently rejecting it. I should mention also that James Marsden appears in a, a small but important role as a kind of the, the kind of skeezy bad boyfriend that is sent up in many comedies, but one that in this show, I think, is given a little bit more dimension, and a little bit more uh, sympathy than than might be expected on his first appearance. Yeah, no, his performance is great. There's so much that's great about it. But did you guys not have the anxiety? I just, I feel so much for the tenderness of the moment that Christina Applegate's character and her family are at. And it just, it feels like torture to watch what might befall them. No, it, it's hard to respond to that without spoiling some important twists in the in the first few episodes. Um but yes, Christina Applegate's character is at the most vulnerable point in her life. And we see very clearly how much she needs the friendship of Judy, of Linda Cardellini's character. And so the possibility that that friendship isn't what it appears to be or that she might be disappointed or betrayed is is terrifying. But I guess I experienced that as a kind of mm. emotional suspense in a way. This is like an yeah. emotionally suspenseful yeah. show. And uh, and it's hard to do that well. Yeah, be beautifully put. I mean, put you you've put your finger on exactly what makes this unique and compelling. Um, you know, the classic suspense thing of of we know the bombs under the coffee table, but the people in the scene don't. You know, as Hitchcock put it, is is expanded here to include the dynamics of a female friendship, and what's at stake is in. It's not going for the cheap thing of is person X going to slit person Y's throat. It's is the new emotional reality and world building going on between these two women as they bond going to be completely blown up uh in front of our our you know in front of our faces it's 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 cool it's cool and interesting what they're doing all right i'm going to stick with it to the end it's dead to me it's on netflix moving on all right. Well, we are joined by Brian Lauder, who's an editor at Slate and a um, co-host of the Outward podcast. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I would say any excuse to revisit your wonderful, wonderful series on camp, the phenomenon of camp, uh, building on the, of course, classic essay by uh, Susan Sontag, which kind of brought it into sort of general intellectual um 
consciousness. Uh, and we have, it turns out, a fantastic excuse, which is that the Met has an exhibit called Camp Notes on Fashion. That was an excuse for them to make camp the theme, theme of their gala. And you went back to the keyboard. Um, so why don't we begin? There are a lot of things to talk about here. There's the Met Gala, there's Sontag's essay, and there's your take on Sontag's essay. But why don't we begin just Talk a little bit about the um, the Met Gala and its turning to camp as a theme. How did that come off in your estimation? Um, well, it's an, it's a hard uh, ask, I think, of the celebrities because camp is such a uh, you know slippery, elusive um, idea to to ask the celebrities and their teams to create a camp uh, outfit or ensemble for for the red carpet at that event uh, was tough. And I think um, we saw online that a lot of people disagreed with individual choices. You know, we had Lady Gaga, who sort of opened it, um, came with four different looks. She tried, uh, they sort of revealed themselves one after the other. She took things off. Um, and some people thought that was camp. Some people thought it wasn't. Um, and we saw lots of different interpretations of it. Um, and some some people seemed to ignore it entirely, possibly. Um, and so I think it was a, it was a tough... Uh, assignment for the Met Gala, um, and you know, I don't, I don't know how satisfying it was. It, it didn't, it didn't leave me feeling super um, happy, but you know, maybe other people felt differently. You know, my main experience of that gala, I was getting on a plane, sitting on a runway, and really just watching Twitter while it was mm-hmm. all happening, and uh, and the fights that were occurring <laughs> among different kind of performative groups about whether what was and wasn't camp, and whether they understood it, and whether they really understood the Sontag essay. There was just, it was just such a silly. Day on yeah. Twitter and such a, an absurd event. At the same time, a lot of the pictures of costumes being circulated were really fun, whether they fell under that definition or not. And uh, the Lady Gaga, I thought the nested Russian doll look, whether or not it you know would have been approved by Susan Sontag's rubber stamp, was just a, a really fun, glorious moment on on the red carpet. I was texting my daughter from the plane because she's a huge little monster Gaga head, and I when the first big giant pink look with the cape came in, yeah. of course I thought that was the whole dress. Uh, texted her and said, "Look at what Lady Gaga's wearing at the Met Gala! Isn't that incredible?" And then there got to be this unfolding drama where I kept texting her again, saying, "There's another dress underneath, and another, and another, and then some undies." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I have to say, insofar, Brian, as your piece defined camp, not defined exactly, but gestured toward camp as being something that is fun, mm-hmm. <laughs> that the yeah. whole essence of it is to be joyful and to be off the grid and to be outside of the conventional understanding of, you know, whatever a, a, an appearance is, is presenting itself to be, um, then I think that her performance on the red carpet was one of the moments that that I felt something like that. Mm, yeah. Surprise and joy. Surprise and joy. Those, I mean, those are great feelings to have around camp. I, I, you know, I will say that I loved um, Billy Porter's look as well when he came in on like a litter <laughs> with with uh, like six different guys carrying him, I think, in full sort of Egyptian gold. Um, that was that was certainly fun. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I think some people felt like that was camp. Some people didn't. And we could talk about it. But uh, he was definitely having fun. And so I enjoyed watching that. I mean, both of those two interpretations, Billy Porter's and Lady Gaga's, which I agree with, those were sort of the showstoppers. Yeah. And they were very early on. So they were never really topped, I didn't think. But both of them interpreted this concept of camp, the prompt that they had been given to interpret as being about excess, mm-hmm, right? That's I mean, right. I'm not just going to have one gown, I'm going to have three gowns and some undies, you know, yeah. and I'm going to be carried in on a litter with a, like an Egyptian god. And uh, and certainly excess is part of what what enters into the kind of historical understanding of that aesthetic category, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's funny. Sometimes excess in this case gets interpreted as just like loudness or over the top or, you know, as many sequins as you can put on a thing. Um, and that could be certainly enjoyable to look at. I think, I think when I think of the word excess in relation to camp, it's more about what you were saying a little bit ago, which is like an, an excessive amount of attention or emotion paid to something you're not supposed to be paying attention to um, or something that's not intentional. So it is excess, but it's excess of like relationality between the viewer and whatever thing we're looking at. Um, not so much excess in the construction of a, of a garment, if that makes sense. Right. It has to do with the relationship between the viewer and what's viewed yeah. or, or expectations and what is actually exactly. before you. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got to say, I kind of loved that this was the theme this year for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, let's just zoom out. So the Met Gala is this extraordinary annual fashion event. It's probably become the most important 
red carpet of the year, totally taken over from the Oscars as the Oscars have become more tame. It is a fundraiser for the Met that is so important to the Met Museum that they close four days a year, and one of them is the day of the Met Gala. I mean, it's in addition to being a fundraiser, I'm sure it's a great marketing event for the whole institution. Um, in some sense, all people who care about fashion spend their lives either trying to impress Anna Winter or ostentatiously not. But she's <laughs> such a barometer of like what is good and cool and interesting in fashion in our culture and has been for several decades. And that has been codified as like a parade of famous people dressing up, it, often in outfits she has helped them commission and approved to like show off how cool and stylish they are. Like the whole event itself Um I don't know. I'm not the person on this call who can say whether or not it is camp, but it it it, it certainly has elements of excess, if that's how we're defining it, and spectacle. Um, and, you know, a lot in, in sort of the last, I don't know, four or five years as this reputation for the event has started to uh, cement itself, there were some years where the theme was like, technology, dresses can have lights on them, where... <laughs> It just became like a excuse to wear a pretty dress on a theme. And the degree of difficulty of the themes has been ratcheting up in recent years, I think. How do you do something with the aesthetics of the church without being inoffensive or too offensive or whatever else, which was the theme last year? And the notion that Anna Wintour convened all of fashion-dom and celebrity-dom in order <laughs> to, like, spur a Twitter argument about the aesthetics and theory of camp is just great. Like the whole thing <laughs> is great. Like what, a, what, a, like, aren't you glad we did that instead of just looking at a bunch of like fishtail sequins? Um, so in general, I would say I'm in favor of the fact that that is how all that energy and time went because it produces a much more interesting conversation about aesthetics and what we do when we wear things and look at each other wearing things than some of the other uh, possibilities. Um, I did, though, think, Brian, that the point you raised in your essay was really interesting. Somehow this year, because the degree of difficulty was so high, um, there was more of a sense of keeping score and and it wasn't about looking beautiful. It was about being like smart and cool enough to get the joke or the concept or the theme and to really understand what camp was and be able to pull it off. And it ended up making really confident performers of self, like Lady Gaga and Billy Porter, look great. And people who more often are well-styled mannequins look a little dopey because they didn't quite get it. And... That's, talk a little bit more about the the stuff you lay out in your essay, Brian, about uh, how this sense of scorekeeping and who got it and who didn't uh, is at odds with your understanding of camp and how we should think about it. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I can't think of another theme for the Met Gala where having read an essay of Sontag's would be like a way of judging someone's preparation mm -hmm. for like a fashion show. It's, it's such a, like that was literally something you would see online is like, oh, they, they clearly didn't read the essay. There was a Vogue video of Lady Gaga prepping with her team. And one of the things she was doing was reading the Did essay really? off of oh, her Oh, that's phone. wonderful. That's so wonderful. Um, but yeah, I think, I think what we saw um, in, in the conversation around the Met Gala and to some extent around the exhibition now that some people are getting to see it because it just opened um, is this sense of like camp as a puzzle you have to solve or a game you win or something you get, you know, for certain or don't or something that has a very clear definition. Uh, and if you and if you, you know, if your team got that from the Met Gala, then you won. And if you and if they didn't, you lost. Um, and that's a very strange way of thinking about camp for me because camp is very subjective um, or the feeling of, of camp is very subjective and really just depends on, as we were saying a little bit earlier, like your relation to whatever aesthetic phenomenon. I mean, it's difficult not to get very abstract when you're talking about it because it, it can really happen anywhere. In my essay, I write about a... Um, uh, a thrift store window that I saw a photo of recently that inspired, the, for me, this whole camp sort of um, reverie, right? And I try to describe what that felt like, but you might see it and not see that same window and not relate to it that way at all. And I can't, I can't really account for that. And that's, that's why camp can be 
I think, so slippery and uh, difficult to, to capture because it really is deeply about the freedom of the individual to relate sort of uh, aesthetically to, to the world around them. Um, and so seeing seeing all of this like competitiveness um, in, in the discourse around the Met uh, uh, exhibition and, and gala was disappointing to me because I, it should be it should be fun. It shouldn't be something that you win or lose. It's something that everybody can take part in. Um, and you know what I do blame Sontag for in this case is is sort of inaugurating that relationship to camp. Um, the essay, if you go back and read it, and I guess Gaga was was seeing this when she was reading it, um, has this very aggressive tone. Very, it's very much about like intellectual muscularity and and sort of capturing something. She uses words like snare um, a lot. And it, it's sort of like the idea that the essay is a trap. Um, and so I think in some ways it's Sontag's fault that we uh, rela- have learned to relate to camp this way as something that we're sort of in opposition to or have an adversarial relationship with, when in fact it's something that uh, anyone can really access and uh, should be fun in doing that. One other thing I observed is that a lot of the odes to camp seem to be kind of odes to the types of mid-century films that got camp readings or sort of early to mid-century mm. films. I mean, I actually thought uh, Cardi B's kind of uh, turban slash cape situation, which was a kind of an old Hollywood ode, you know, quote unquote worked, whatever that means in some way. Um, had had a sense of an evil queen wink to it that mm. that that felt campy to me, um, but there was a there were a lot of kind of mid century references that felt like mainstream texts that had acquired subtextual campy readings over time, and so they were almost historical homages to previous modes of camp, and then there were some that just seemed. Uh, some of the ones that I thought worked better, and here I am grading and ranking again, but things like Billy Porter on the litter, or I also really love Jared Leto holding Jared Leto's head. <laughs> yeah, I just thought, I just thought it just made me laugh. It was just funny and achieved an effect and was uh, goofy and self-serious and, and self-deprecating at the same time, and I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't feel like there were people kind of skewering it. it obviously you could have a kind of a campy reading of the whole Met Gala itself. And Mm -hmm. I was sort of surprised there weren't people campily camping as like Kardashians or something. Like, I feel like my, my Met Gala camp outfit would have been to just like dress as Kim Kardashian or something like the, the actual aesthetics of Instagram beauty right now are so nutso that that would have been something to like send up or play with or alternately read or like I just have just tiger stripes of contour and hot like there, <laughs> there was sort of a datedness to the references that I'm incoherently asking for you to respond to I think I, think, I, mean, I have to say though if you were dressed as a Kardashian you might be indistinguishable from mm. anyone on a regular red carpet at any event I was sort of surprised that no one came as Susan Sontag there were no gray streaks in hair that no black I will mix. say actually actually the style editor of the Los Angeles Times was in attendance and did dye his hair in a gray streak so ah, okay, okay. alright someone did it good That that's kind of if I had I mean this is a very like I said a very difficult ask I, it, it is hard to make to create camp like in a in sort of an active fashion like this and especially when there's you know teams of people involved uh in creating these ensembles um but if i were if i were asked to do it i think i would have taken like either that sort of imitation of sontag sort of take or maybe maybe created just like a bodysuit out of the little stickers they give you at the met now um and, and just like <laughs> like d- done something that played off the thing itself because uh julia like you said the Met Gala is is was already like a a camp ground, we might say. Like it, if in years past, it's been a place where, um, you know, these celebrities are are wearing these sort of overdetermined looks, and there's so much pressure, and it's such a big thing that it's very easy to watch it and and find little camp moments of your own to relate to. And so, making it like literal on the red carpet this year created a strange kind of friction um and and i think uh you know the only way to sort of get at, get outside of that would have been to really skewer the event itself I, I think you're right about that that would have been that would have been the approach i would have taken wait brian brian i just had a i just had like a a, a, a camp epiphany is part of the issue that camp is an act of reading a text and not 
camp is an inference, not an implication. Camp is, camp is in the receiver, not the projector. And so all of these poor people who are trying to like project camp were fundamentally in a bad position because that's not actually where the camp lives. I yes, I think that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it is. It is a mode of of engagement for sure. Um, not or reading. Yeah, not not um not usually something that you can sort of you can, I think, create um let's say texts that are more open uh to different kinds of interpretation. So that would make them more open to camp. But but yeah, I think I think it is very again it is would be very difficult to be certain that one had created like a camp outfit because I don't, I don't know what that means. Like it, it would mean, it means an entirely different thing to each viewer. Um, and I think it's striking that like in our, so uh, Christina Carterucci, our, one of our writers here at Slate wrote about the, the, the Met Gala and the fashion that night. And I, the thing that she said she found the most camp and I agree with this was a, uh, there was a photograph of Anna Wintour, like on a, you know, like up on a balcony or something. Um, and like two people over, there was a woman holding up a, a phone with a guy, some random guy on FaceTime. Um, and we both sort of gravitated toward that as like the campus thing that happened at the Met Gala, like that guy on FaceTime, just sort of like beaming over the crowd below. Um, because it, that was a way of like escaping all the pressure of this of this event. Um, so yeah, it you know they they did all this effort to create their camp looks, and this guy on Facetime is the one who won, <laughs> in my view. But that kind of brings me to something that we haven't mentioned that you say that that Sontag takes way too long to get to in notes on camp. So uh-huh. I don't want us to take too long to get to it, which is queerness, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know quite know how the Facetime guy relates to that, but I think only because it's a marginal, right? It's something on the margins of the event that you and Christina kind of focused on and said, okay, here's a moment that seems like. Yeah camp to us because it's what we're not supposed to be looking at or not supposed to be experiencing. And and obviously the genealogy of camp comes from queer spaces, drag, etc. If you could talk a bit about that and how the Met Gala inflected that, I'd, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, it, like you said, in, in Notes on Camp, um, I think it takes Sontag until like note 50 or 58 to like mention um, homosexuals by name anyway. Um, and so there is this weird to me, weird sort of attitude of dismissiveness um, in that essay about it's it's like she's trying to, I don't know, like rescue camp from the taint of homosexuality a little bit, but also she recognizes that homosexual, she says they're the, uh, the, we're the most um, articulate uh, group about it. And she uh, herself was bi. Is she was bi, seemed to have sort of a complicated relationship to like group identity affiliation, um, uh, but definitely was was queer herself. Um, and so that, that's like in the essay, I think in the show, uh, the exhibition, and then also the, um, the gala and the, the, um, the Met production around that, um, they have been, they have been pretty good. I mean, the show has a lot about homosexuality and queerness in it. So I think they, they've corrected that a bit. Um, and, and, and I think, uh, in a, in a positive way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think camp is, is one of queerness's greatest uh sort of aesthetic productions i guess um and it 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 does come from the margins it comes from the, an experience of of living on the margins and so having to so then sort of learning to look for one's pleasures on the margins as well um and so you know any any discussion of camp that that is disconnected from that history um is is missing something important mm. All right. Well, the piece is on Slate. It's called What Camp Is by Brian Louder. Brian, thanks uh, for coming back on the show. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, this week I'm going to endorse two things, both of which are easily findable on YouTube. One of them I mentioned in our discussion just now with Brian Louder about the Met Gala, which is this video that Vogue magazine put out documenting Lady Gaga getting ready for the um, the red carpet at the Met Gala with her with her team. And uh, it's just really, really fun to watch the amount of work and the kind of work that goes into a Lady Gaga self-presentation event. And uh, so they interview the cutter who cut her gown and the guy who's been sort of her, her stylist team chief for a decade or so and so knows her and her style very well 
And uh, you see her reading Susan Sontag's notes on camp out loud from her phone to her team. And you see them doing all kinds of precision cutting so that those four gowns can nest inside of each other in the incredible way they did. And uh, it's just it's very fun and satisfying. And if you're not already a Gaga fan, I bet you become more of one after watching how much passion and thought she puts into that that appearance at the Met Gala. And the other is in reference to last week and our Slate Plus segment, which was about the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. And Steve, you asked me this great but extremely broad question of sort of why silent film you know um, how how do we get into this if this is something that we perceive as you know alien far away in the past you know not not worth revisiting anymore and I didn't have this on the tip of my tongue at the time but I should have because as I think I told you in this late plus segment the reason I went to that festival was to interview this this great silent film scholar Kevin Brownlow uh, and Kevin Brownlow was the co-creator of this really great 1980 series called um, Hollywood, which was created by Kevin Brownlow and and David Gill. Uh, the two of them had also made it. They made a great documentary on Buster Keaton called A Hard Act to Follow. This is a 13 episode, one hour pre each episode series about the silent era. And if you start with the first episode, Hollywood, you can essentially follow the creation of Hollywood in the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And one of the things they did, it was 1980, but he and his co-creators went around and interviewed the people that were still alive who had directed films, started in films, uh, you know, stood behind the camera on films in the silent era. And uh, they are all just such great storytellers. And um, there's some beautiful clips in there. There's a great piece of theme music that will get caught in your head forever. And you'll learn a ton about silent cinema. And it will, I think, put people on the path to looking up movies, individual movies they want to watch. So again, the series is called Hollywood. You can watch the entire thing on YouTube, all 13 episodes. And it's created by Kevin Brownlow and David Gill. All righty. Julia, what do you have? Um, I would like to endorse a song to listen to in the car with your children. It is the song Give It Up by Casey and the Sunshine Band. You might not know that you know this song, but you do know this song. It is absolutely retrograde in its politics. I'm pretty sure the conceit of the song is just, you're hot. I'm seeing you at a party. You should have sex with me. Come on, why won't you? Um, but it's just a really good song. So give it up by Casey and the Sunshine Band. It's a bop. I just love imagining groovy 70s Julia. Julia would have been great in the 70s with some big flare (laughs) pants and sparkly sunglasses. That's very funny. Uh, All right. Well, I have two endorsements this week. The first is, uh, as probably most of the world knows, there was an astonishing ending to a basketball game, Game 7, between Philly and um, Toronto. The star of Toronto with four and a half seconds left took the ball down to the right-hand wing and uh, over the seven-foot Joel Embiid put up a what looked like a prayer and it it bounced. It took four bounces on the rim and, the, and it seemed to defy physics, but the ball went in even though at least two of the bounces, you know, as someone who's watched a million hours of basketball, I've just never seen a ball bounce like that and I've never seen a ball that bounced anything like that actually go in the basket and what what there were several amazing things about this it was not only was it a supremely dramatic ending to a basketball game and series and vindication for Kawhi Leonard the star who took the shot who had all kinds of issues last year with his previous team but the sheer length of time it took for the ball to complete its arc and then bounce meant that the buzzer had sounded and there was enough time for Kawhi Leonard the guy who shot it to go into a full crouch and just open his eyes as wide as possible and stare waiting along with millions and millions of people to see whether it went in which resulted in one of the greatest sports shots I've ever seen because the guy who was defending him had enough time to let his body go slack turn and join Leonard in watching whether or not the ball would go in and it's like the tableau and the crowd you see part of the crowd behind them I mean it just it's just insane but what I'm endorsing is uh, a guy named Barry Pachetsky, who's a 
I don't know, editor of some kind at Deadspin, wrote um, a piece called Kawhi Leonard and a Story of Four Bounces. You know, he must have written it, you know, in the in the minutes, I think, after this insane buzzer beater had happened. And it's just such a absolutely perfect summation of this sublime, really sublime moment in American sports history. I mean, up there with kind of anything I've ever seen uh, on on uh, sport watching sports TV. Uh, it's an incredible piece of writing and really worth reading, even if you're not a basketball fan, because it is one of those moments of total zen that sports only really sports can deliver especially in an era where no one watches live tv anymore um so i want to endorse that and then very quickly i read a tremendously good essay on the late um fairly recently deceased american philosopher stanley cavell who began his career in a relatively traditional fashion was a i think an epistemologist came up with that group that included dennett and rorty and uh, Jerry Fodor and um, but his interests just branched you know out um, you know kind of um, incorrigibly into you know uh, American transcendentalism into aesthetics she uh, uh, was obsessed with Shakespeare and Shakespearean tragedy and also Dana you probably know the um, the book that he wrote about screwballs as comedies of remarriage is a very famous book on on Hollywood movies yep anyway yeah, that's a, t- 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 a tremendously good book. I just I finished book. a book by him called The World View that was about film also. That's absolutely fantastic. I think I've maybe endorsed it on the show, but you love <sighs> Stanley Cavell. Uh, he, he just, I mean, the kind of career that one's heart has to break for the fact that no one will be able to have going forward. I mean, sort of academic sinecure, tenure, uh, and then allowed to go off and do what you want. I mean, so few people are going to be able to reproduce a career like that. Um, but anyway, um, a, 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 a contemporary of his named Marshall Cohen, who knew him personally and was something of a professional frenemy, I think I get the sense that they had significant, not unfriendly, but significant disagreements about the direction of philosophy, wrote a remembrance of him and a and a kind of contemplation of his career on the LA Review of Books. And he, he you know, he really gets at the essence of Cavell, which is that in everything he was doing, he was trying to understand the nature of skepticism because modern philosophy begins with skepticism. It begins with Descartes saying that he cannot trust his own senses. And all of modern philosophy is a form of Cartesian skepticism, uh, a form of doubt and like kind of ultimate doubt. Like, can I even believe, you know, that words mean what they say? Can I believe that my eyes are telling me are representing to me the contents of an actual world that's independent of my consciousness, on and on and on and on. And Cavell was trying to get at what is it about skepticism that, what, what is it that would drive anyone to this kind of neurotic overthinking that they, that they, that they, that they, that, that they would believe or give any credence to radical skepticism. And then he took that insight as a purely phil- philosophical insight and applied it, for example, to Lear, King Lear and his skepticism about Cordelia's profession of love, which seems so incredibly arbitrary, or Othello's inability to believe that Desdemona is um, faithful to him and his susceptibility to Iago's suggestion that she's not, even though she absolutely is. Um, where did these skepticisms come from? And he, he begins to diagnose, or Cavell diagnoses skepticism as a form of evasion and moral evasion and evasion of our own kind of existential situation as, you know, as needing a kind of faith to live with the fact of our own finitude and ultimate death. And and we're avoiding that when we turn to skepticism and his ability to bring together. Anyway, I'll leave it there because Cohen's essay is so terrifically good at saying what this life project was in a way that I had never considered how all of the, and I was always overawed by the eclecticism of his interests, but of course they had this one obsessive theme running through all of them and just that academia allowed someone to have a single coherent life project that touched on so many different things uh, really comes through in this essay so highly recommended it's called uh, must we mean what we say on the life and thought of stanley cavell it's at the la review of books it is really a fine piece of writing by marshall cohen uh, anyway, okay. Uh, Steve, just to, to to rewind past the philosophy back to the basketball, <laughs> I actually was completely aware of that shot without having ever seen it or any of the game because I live with a Sixers fan <laughs> who oh, experienced right. the four bounces, oh, not as God. sublime, but as tragic. <laughs> oh, totally tragic. <laughs> because they ended the Sixers season. And, uh, and I sure. knew he was watching a big game that it could have ended their season. So I asked afterward, how did the game go? And he elaborately described this bouncing shot that was incredibly hard to picture 
and uh, was, you know, of course, tragically sad that this shot had, had occurred, but was also fascinated by its physical impossibility. And so I became interested in that shot. And uh, and there's also a great New York Times piece that's only about the Kawhi Leonard shot with the four bounces. And uh, anyway, that was just one of those basketball moments, a little bit like Greg Popovich's inspiring speeches that hooked me even outside of caring about the game itself. So I will be sure to send my household Sixers fan to that deadspin piece you mentioned so he can marinate some more in the impossibility of those four bounces. First of all, I just have to acknowledge that the basketball plus uh, philosophy one-two punch of Steve's endorsement was as Steve as any Gamelan reference from Dana ever in the history of this podcast. And number two, any basketball shot that is so good it has penetrated Dana Stevens's awareness is one that I probably need to look up and understand. So this is I, a, a I mean, world historic endorsement on many counts. I will not. I will not like gild the lily here, but. If you haven't seen the fucking shot, you've got it. I mean, you just, it does seem to defy, the weird thing is how it defies physics. It's not just that it's, you know, and by the way, in the history of the NBA, a game seven playoff series has never been decided by a buzzer beater. Um, it's the first time in the history of the entirety of the NBA playoffs that a game seven has come down to someone taking the final shot, the buzzer sounding and the ball going through the hoop and uh, game over. So, I mean, it just kind of, it's just one of those things, you know? Anyway, all right. Uh, Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. As always, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or, or please interact with us on Twitter. We love it. It's Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. Um, we also have the endorsomatic. That's slate.com slash endorsements. You can go and look up everything we've ever endorsed in the history of the show. Uh, please do. It's a lot of fun for everybody. And uh, we have a producer. His name is Benjamin Frisch, a production assistant. whose name is Alex Barish. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. So even if you're enjoying like, ah, parasites, wah, or, oh, our darling children, <laughs> no, our darling, like, it's just something to talk about and it's not Brexit and it's not something just awful. And so, you know, it's like, it's a topic and you might hate it, but everybody needs a topic.